Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Professor Yvonne Sadovi first became fascinated with marine life as a child when her father gave her a snorkeling mask. She's been based at the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Hong Kong since 1993. In this week's programme, she talks to me about the Napoleon Ras, a large and distinctive green and turquoise reef fish that changes sex as it gets older. It's a fish that Yvonne loves to see as a keen diver, though it's rarely seen in Hong Kong waters, as it prefers a temperature a bit warmer. But we do eat it here, and fishing practices are putting this species at risk. I first talked to Yvonne about what attracted her to Hong Kong. So I've been at the university about 23 years now and I'm in the School of Biological Sciences and we have a section which really focuses on ecology and biodiversity. And within that section I work on fish and fisheries and conservation, so I cross a number of fields. That means I teach things like marine biology, I teach fish and fisheries for sustainable management of fisheries, for example. I also contribute to things like oceanography, evolutionary biodiversity. So really it spans across a whole range of marine fish species, my work, and also our use of them and our conservation of them. So it's quite a broad field. Now in Hong Kong, that uh, aspect must be sometimes a little bit depressing. Yes, I mean one of the one of the big things that really attracted me to coming to Hong Kong it was the fact that I knew that it was a very famous center for seafood. I knew that in this region, so East Asia in particular, not very much was known about the species that were kind of exploited and used for seafood, including a number of groups of fish I was interested in. And so it just fascinated me to come over and work in a in a region very different from where I had been working before. So yeah, I saw it as a big challenge and I saw it as a big adventure. Can you tell me, you know, when you were a kid or when you were a young student, what was the attraction of marine biology? I actually pretty much can remember, well, a couple of things. One was seeing uh, underwater. I think many of my generation saw underwater films by Jack Cousteau. And so I was inspired by that and I wanted to do that. And I loved the water and I loved animals. So it was, I was one of those, I think, lucky people who knew from a very early age what I wanted to do. And then I had the opportunity, when, when we were on holiday in south of France, my father bought me a mask and I had the chance to see underwater. And that was sort of it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wonderful. Cause, um, so do, have you done um, diving in Hong Kong? I have um, when I because I've been diving really you know as long as I possibly can and when I first came here I one of the first things I wanted to do uh, was was to dive you know have the opportunity to dive and I did dive quite a lot in the early years but one of the frustrations I had was that on so many of the dives I would go on there were gill nets everywhere these are nets that are used to catch fish they're very fine monofilament nylon and a lot of them that are used very commonly in fishing here and they very commonly get lost they either get discarded or they get lost and there were lots and lots of them at that time that had been discarded and were just sitting on the bottom and Almost every dive we went on, we, were, we spent most of our time sort of pulling out dying animals. And I went through a phase where I really didn't want to go and dive. But sort of more recently, there are, and 
divers have discovered um, in Hong Kong some really wonderful places to go to. When the water visibility is good, the conditions are good, it's not too cold, uh, we have these little pockets of beautiful places, coral reef areas, lots of biodiversity, in other words, a great number of, of different species. Really actually quite fantastic, the number of species underwater we have here. So I do appreciate it here underwater very much, but there are these depressing elements. Because we're an intensely urban centre, there's a lot of activity um, in and around the water on the coast that affects our our shorelines. So I suppose it's not surprising that we see these impacts, but I think from a conservation perspective, I think there's a lot we could do to reduce the rubbish that goes into the water and reduce the impacts um, on the species, for example, by by the the very heavy overfishing that we do, too much fishing uh, for the populations to sustain them, basically. Among all the different... I mean, you've obviously, being um, a professor here, you study a whole variety of marine biology but we're going to focus on one fish today and that's the napoleon wrasse can you describe to me what a napoleon wrasse looks like napoleon wrasse this is a pretty amazing animal it's, it's a beautiful color so i'm what i'm thinking about it is how you would describe you know as a diver how i would describe this to someone who maybe hadn't seen it in the water so i think you're struck by several things one is if you're lucky you see a very big one and these, when I say very big, these are one of the biggest of all the reef fishes. So they can get to almost two meters in length. So these are massive. They are a, sort of a bright blue-green color, so you're also struck by that. And they're just very solid. And they're very unfish-like in many ways. They don't so much as swim, but fly through the water the way they use their fins. So they're quite unusual in many ways. This is a species that many divers would really want to see as a big individual because there are very few big individuals left. One of the other things that I'm very struck by with this species is, maybe I'm biased, but to me it has some real charisma. And what I mean by that is in places where it's not fished, in other words, where it's not frightened of fishermen, you can get very, very close to it. Or in fact, it will approach you. And I've often had the experience uh, in places where I've seen this, maybe protected areas in particular in Southeast Asia, where they will approach you and swim around you and their eyes swivel. They have chameleon-like eyes. Their eyes swivel and you really feel they're looking at you, checking you out. They've had a look. They'll circle you a couple of times and then they'll swim off. These are the big ones that do this. So it's really quite a bizarre experience to be checked out by this big fish underwater uh, so they're quite unusual yeah what an experience i mean i've yes i've um i think i probably have seen them oh, yeah. um underwater near bali would that be possible oh yeah absolutely because these so the napoleon fish or humphead wrasse that's a, that's another name because the big individuals have a big hump on the front of their head they live very extensively across much of the pacific Pacific Islands, Southeast Asia, right across Southeast Asia, and also in the Indian Ocean. There are coral reef fish. So everywhere in the Indo-Pacific region, they're associated with coral reef fishes. So Bali, in fact, Indonesia is pretty much the center of their distribution. Now, you, uh, obviously, the humphead wrasse, uh, the fact that it's got a hump on its yeah. head is fairly self-explanatory. Why is it called the Napoleon wrasse? Yes, I was very curious about this. And some of these names, it's quite difficult to, to find the origin. But the best story I've come up with, I found, was that in New Caledonia, which islands are east of Australia, there was a fisherman called Napoleon. This is the story. And he loved to catch this fish, and he was famous for being, being very good at catching this fish. Now, that is... That is distinctive because the Napoleon fish is actually quite difficult to catch 
by usual fishing methods. And by usual fishing methods, I mean things like hook and line, fish trap, what we would think of, gill net, a net. They're very difficult to catch. So he was very specialised and very famous for catching a very big fish. And this Napoleon fish was also quite famous because culturally it was acknowledged to be unusual and it was a special fish. So it was something that I guess people noticed and he became famous for. That's the story. But catching the fish, it's caught a lot for food. As I said, it's difficult to catch using normal methods, standard fishing methods. So one of the methods that's used is with cyanide, sodium cyanide, because using this poison, you can very efficiently and quickly catch a large number of small fish. And it's the juveniles, it's the young fish that we see in the tanks in Hong Kong, outside the seafood restaurants, for example. The reason that cyanide is used is because it's so difficult to catch the fish with these standard methods of hook or trap or net. When you're using cyanide, how do you use it to catch the fish? The way in which a fisherman would catch a Napoleon with cyanide, they would, if that's their target fish, which often it is because of its very high value, so you imagine a snorkeler or a diver, usually someone snorkeling on the surface, they would swim along and they would see the animal and then they would have in solution in something like a unlike a washing up squeezy bottle they would have cyanide solution it's a white kind of solution and they would go down and they would chase the napoleon which would as a response dive into the reef basically is because that's where they would find shelter the fishermen would squeeze the uh, solution into that hole and the animal, the way in which the cyanide acts is it stops the uptake of oxygen in the gills and that's how they breathe and so the animal essentially sort of keels over and if the fisherman pulls the animal out quickly enough into fresh water it will recover so but the use of this method is it sort of seems ironic that we use a poison because sodium cyanide is a very nasty poison to catch a fish to keep it alive but they can do this if it recovers the problem with the cyanide is with repeated use on the reef it kills living coral and it also takes a lot of bycatch and what I mean by that is the fisherman might take out the target fish recover it very quickly but there's a lot of animals in there that he's not interested in and they just will die so that's bycatch that's unwanted and wasted so this is really a method we're concerned about for the use of particularly this fish because it's so difficult to catch with any other means now you were describing how when you've dived that you've seen uh, Napoleon Rass or hum humphead, do we say rasses? You mean, uh, well, I guess singular is ras and plural is rasses. It sounds a little bit of a tongue twister, but I, I, guess, I guess I would say ras. Yeah, yeah so the humphead ras, um, you, you've seen examples that have been uh, up to two metres uh, long. Um, now, in terms of, he's, he, as you described, um, he's right, he or she is right throughout the region. But when I say he or she, I mean, do both male and female humphead rasses look the same? It, it would be difficult if you see these animals in, say, the aquarium or in a tank. It would be difficult to know their sex um, unless you know a little bit more about them because the colours are the same. But if you're in the field, they have different behaviours. And also if you know about their life history, you, you would know from their size, for example, what their sex would be. So, for example... Uh, the way in which this animal uh, lives, it, it, it's first of all a juvenile, a, a baby, and then it grows into a female, and the females only get to about 80 centimetres long. Okay, so where do the bigger ones come from, the two-metre ones? Well, some of those females will, that later in their life, change their sex 
to become a male. So this is a species that we call hermaphroditic. It changes its sex, in this case from female to male. So anything much bigger than 80 centimeters will be a male. So that's from the size point of view. But the color isn't that much different. So you will also see different behaviors between males and females. For example, when they reproduce, it's sort of quite a remarkable experience to see them reproduce. So there are these special places on the reef that they go to to reproduce, to, to mate, basically. And they will only go there for very, very specific and short periods of time. And it's the same place on the reef. And if you know those places and go and sit there as a diver quietly, you will see, first of all, when it's the time, and it's usually associated with tide, when it's the time for mating, first of all, a few females come in. They've traveled across the reef from wherever they were feeding, come in. Then the males come in, the big males come in, and they fight amongst themselves for access to the females. Then the males begin to change their color. They go a sort of, a sort of more greenish color. And then they have these signals, which they do with their fins. So fish do a lot with their color. Uh, and with the fins in this species, the tail fin, they cross. It actually crosses the fin over and the anal fin, the one sort of on the, on the, on the ventral side, they point. So the color change, the pointed fin and the crossed tail fin are signals that the males give to the females that they're ready to mate. And then they sort of chase around the females and when a female is ready, her eggs are ready, she will follow him up, up into the water and they will release the sperm and eggs and then dive back down again. So you see that behavior and the males and female behavior is very, very different. So the eggs and the sperm are released into the water. How many eggs would a, a Napoleon female Napoleon wrasse produce? It would be hundreds of thousands, probably. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it depends on the size, because the bigger the female, the more eggs she can produce. But tens to thousands to hundreds of thousands. And those little eggs float up into the water column. They're buoyant. They, they're fertilized within a few minutes, and then they float off into the water out there in the ocean somewhere. Or actually... You know, in, for marine biologists or people who work on fish that have this type of reproduction, in other words, the little eggs go up into the water column, we really don't know very much about where they go because these eggs, a couple of days later, will hatch into larvae and then they'll be in the water column away from the reef for maybe a month or so. What's a water column? So if you imagine the open ocean, I suppose, yes, the open ocean. So they float off, basically, into the open ocean, into the open sea. Um, or they might actually float inshore, we don't know, but they're up in the water. They're not down on the, on the reef anywhere. And they're floating around like that for about a month. And so where they go, we really don't know. And it's one of the big mysteries in marine biology. But what's interesting is that now with a lot of uh, genetic work being done on marine species, we're beginning to understand a bit more about population structure. What that means is sort of what fish comes from where, basically, and which population it belongs to. So we can begin to reconstruct uh, th this rather mysterious aspect of life history. So a Napoleon wrasse initially is female after the larvae stage, goes into juvenile stage and is female to the outset, but from the outset is on her own. On her own in what sense? Well, there's no parent or there's no oh, family, absolutely. there's no... Yes, so, so this kind of reproduction, where, they, where the male and female, which is actually most marine fishes that we, especially those that we eat commercially, uh, have this habit. So they release these tiny little eggs out in the open water and they're on their own. There's no care by the male or female of the eggs. Yes, they're on their own. And in fact, 
that's one of the reasons, the fact there's no care, that these animals release so many eggs, these tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of eggs, because the chance of any one surviving to adulthood is tiny, very, very tiny. So it's a bit of a lottery, actually. Um, and that's why they, they, they have this kind of reproductive type with lots and lots of eggs, very low survivorship. You've described how the females and males uh, alert one another that they're ready. How often does this occur in a year, say? With the Napoleon fish, it reproduces maybe once a month for many months in the year. It does depend on location, and I think that's partly dependent on water temperature. Mm. Uh, this is a warm water species. Uh, it's why we get very, very few, for example, coming to Hong Kong, because in the winter we have quite cold temperatures down to about 16 or so, which is pretty cold for a, a tropical species. Patrick Chan is a fisherman and retired fish trader and breeder from Hong Kong who's been collaborating with Yvonne on a book about his life and experiences with fish, both as a diver and as a trader. Here's a translated excerpt voiced by my RTHK colleague Matt Walsh, where Patrick Chan talks about trying to catch the elusive Napoleon Ras in the Pratas Islands, also known as the Dongsha Islands in the South China Sea. The humphead Ras is a clever and territorial fish. It usually just preys on animals living in the coral areas around its home base. In the mid-1970s, I often encountered a humphead wrasse while spearfishing in the Pratas Islands, but it usually kept a constant distance from me. As I chased it, the fish swam faster away from me, and when I slowed down, it also reduced its speed. In this way, it never came within my hunting range. It seemed to know that it had to keep a safe distance away from me. When I chased it quickly, it just hid within the coral reef and seemed to disappear. During the entire seven-day trip, no one in our team caught a single humphead wrasse. Later on, I was told by an experienced diver friend that the humphead wrasse usually lies near the roof of the caves within the reef, and so it could be hard to find. On the next dive trip, I took my torch and found that it did indeed tuck itself against the roof of the cave, staying very still on its side in an effort to keep itself safe. However, it was also the biggest chance for me to catch it. This is such a good example of being the victim of its own cleverness. This fish also seems to have spirituality. When I was diving around the Pratas Islands, catches were usually gutted on board. We usually saw humphead wrasses together with other fish that came to feed on the fish guts when we discarded these into the sea. Every morning, when I was gargling on the deck, I could see a few humphead wrasses swimming around the vessel. Later, when I kept some humphead wrasses in a floating cage at a fish farm and fed them every day, they showed the same behavior and swam towards people whenever they stood at the edge of the cage. Sometimes they would float to the surface and let me touch their backs. When I touched them, they kept looking at me. It seemed like they were enjoying themselves. Their behavior seems so different from that of other fish. How, how fast does the Napoleon, I mean, when you've seen it in the water and it's been circling you as a diver, but just generally also out in the open water, I mean, do they move quite quickly? Are they comparable to other, you know, like, say, shark species of a similar size in terms of speed or agility? Yeah, the, the, the Napoleon fish is, is, I guess most people would think of it as a more slow-moving fish. So it's not like a shark, it's not like a tuna, it's not, you know, these, these, they very, and it's not designed, the body design isn't one that is, is, is for f fast moving. And generally, when you see it on the reef, it's sort of meandering over the reef and feeding and, 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 you know, poking around in the rocks for its food. But when it accelerates, it, 
it's actually quite astonishing to me how quickly it can move. So I've seen them kind of come flying. I want to use the word flying because that's what it's like, up from the deep to the shallow. As a diver, you would see that, or down into the deep. They can move very fast. And usually when they're moving around the reef, they're they have this they look like they're flying it's the way they use their fins but when they want to move fast they bring in this very strong big powerful tail that they have and that will come into play and they can really move fast so it's actually quite quite amazing how fast they can move it's like it's like an elephant that's suddenly running very fast i mean that's the feeling that you have because it's such a bulky animal now other than humans fishing them do they have any natural predators I think the largest ones probably have very few natural predators other than maybe larger, even larger sharks. So when they get, if they have survived to get to a larger size, there's probably very little that would take them. Now, if they're large and if they're just meandering over the coral, why are they so difficult to catch? Because the, the main reason is because of what they eat. They don't take a bait, it seems. Um, they don't stumble into a gill net they certainly don't enter a trap fish trap having said that there are some places i think solomon islands is one that has a very specialized kind of gear and fishermen who specialize in catching it but that's really an exceptional case where, what, can you remind me where the solomon islands are oh, so solomon islands are sort of in the west pacific yeah and they've they've specialized in, in catching i think they have a specialized fish trap to catch the smaller ones but they they just don't for whatever reason they just don't take a fishing bait very readily fishermen will occasionally catch them by chance because they do occasionally take a bait but they don't regularly and for the live fish trade which is the trade that sources and trades in in the fish that we see in the tanks outside restaurants in Hong Kong. So I call that the live reef fish trade. For this trade, there's a very high demand. There's uh, traders need a very large number of animals, and the only way with this species you can get a large number of animals efficiently and quickly is by using this poison, sodium cyanide. Where are we in terms of numbers of Napoleon wrasses? Is it uh, under threat at all? Always very difficult to know numbers of fish. You know, we have sort of relative estimates of, of how healthy a population is. But the species is not is considered an uncommon species, and you will not see many adults on the reef, and that's a very bad sign, because without adults, you don't have much reproduction. What we see in the tanks here are the juveniles, so there's a fishery on juveniles. From what we've done in biological studies and ongoing surveys since, gosh, since mid-90s, actually, we see that many populations where there is no protection of some kind, that those populations are very depleted, very few individuals, very few adults. And that's a real worry because if you don't have adults, then you're not going to have that reproduction and you're not going to have the regeneration of the population. So we've got two different sources um, for where the fish come from. You've got those that are sourced from the wild um, who um, will be often a bit larger. There is an issue there also about these fish uh, reaching ad adulthood. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the fish that are sourced directly from the wild, in other words, they're not grown out in these cages, these are animals which are already uh, at advanced stage of development and very likely to become an adult. So this is the removal of potential adults. And if we remove too many young of these young fish it means that there's not going to be enough to replenish the populations in future and this is what the problem is the, the life history of this species is that it has a long life 
I, I think a lot of people have no idea uh, how long it lives, uh, which is similar to something like an elephant in captivity. Over 30 years. These are long-lived species. And what that means is, in terms of life history, is that they take quite a long time to mature. They need many years to replace themselves. It's just part of their life history. And so if we don't leave enough young animals that will become uh, adults in the wild, we're not going to see populations in future. And in fact, there's very few places we can go to now where the species is not protected where the species is fished, that you will see adults in the wild. It's a rarity now. Yeah, that's a shame, because as you say, you've got a model here in your office here at the University of Hong Kong of a Napoleon mouse, and it's, it's uh, yeah, a lovely sort of turquoise face uh, and then and then this uh, green body it's a very attractive fish or an impressive mm-hmm. fish we're talking about the humphead wrasse or also known as the napoleon wrasse is that the only kind of this species this is a pretty unique species it's 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 probably very specialized there's nothing quite like the napoleon fish we've got other big reef fish we've got big reef groupers and but most of the other wrasses the same family are much much small, smaller so this is really quite a unique kind of animal the chances of actually uh, a napoleon wrasse reaching adulthood is is actually quite slim so um in terms of the the fish themselves though you were saying how they sort of organize themselves for breeding at other times are they loners or do they sort of move around together yeah the so in the non-breeding period, the breeding period is when you get to see a lot of individuals, males and females. When they're not reproducing, where the species is not fished, so it's sort of under natural circumstances, you do see very small groups. Now, we don't know whether they move around in groups. We do know they move around over quite large areas, you know, several kilometer squares. So they have, you could think of it as a territory that they move around in, they feed and what have you. But generally, in terms of their behavior, you would think of them as solitary. And certainly the big males, they seem to be pretty solitary. So it's just when they group to reproduce that you see a lot of them together, maybe several hundreds if you're lucky. Scientists are only just beginning to learn, say, with an animal like a a mammal, like a dolphin, how they navigate in the water. But if you say that a a fish has X amount of kilometers as territory, do we know anything about how they know where they are? This, this question of how some of these reef fishes, well, in fact, many fishes can travel long distances on a regular basis. How do they know? How do they learn these locations? The answer is we don't know for sure, but there have been studies on some reef fishes. So what we think um, with a number of different species uh, is that the young... The juveniles, when they have to learn where to go, for example, for for reproduction, because they have to learn where that reproduction place is, they learn from following um, adults in the same species. You were describing how a Napoleon fish or a Napoleon wrasse can live um, up to 30 years. Now, from the larva stage, moving on into becoming a female wrasse before later on becoming a male wrasse, those that survive, um, from the larvae to the juvenile stage, at what point can um, a fish start to breed? It takes an animal around four to five years to get to what we call sexual maturation, basically. So the first ones will start breeding at that time. So it's very important for these animals to be able to survive that long in the wild to be able to reach reproduction. And nowadays, with so much fishing pressure, uh, in so many parts of the world where these animals live, that, can, that becomes increasingly a challenge. Final question, why do you have a model of a Napoleon wrasse in your office? Is it your favourite fish? 
How did you guess? Actually, if you look around amongst all the books and things, there are actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight models of various kind. I do. I really, I like this fish a lot. It's symbolic of many of the species which are facing challenges of overfishing. It's just at a more extreme end. And, and what I feel is if we can find ways where we can sustainably trade and sustainably manage this species, like a flagship species or a poster species, we need to get this right because, you know, it's, it's a, it is a fantastic species. It's a very valuable species in source countries where they come from. People earn quite a bit from them. The traders earn quite a bit from them. People here in Hong Kong and China like to eat them. We've got to get this right, otherwise we will lose this species. And I think it represents many of the problems faced by many of the other species. But it's distinctive, um, one we can focus on. Um, and because it's listed under CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, we really have a kind of a strong legal basis on which to try to make sustainable management work. So I think it touches a lot of buttons for me. Uh, and biologically, it's extremely interesting. And it's a very attractive fish. <laughs> My thanks to Professor Yvonne Sadovi of the University of Hong Kong. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>